version of a condemnation that we saw last week of the people because they were fasting with hearts not devoted to God and uh, not fully remembering God the way the fasting was supposed to take place and the fact that if they were um, if they were not living out the love your neighbor as yourself aspects of the law along with the fasting, then it sort of negated the fast and made it a, a false uh, kind of worship. So, uh, I don't think that we looked at verses 13 and 14. Um, verses 13 and 14, there's some discussion of whether that's looking back to uh, what took place during the exile or whether, whether it was an anticipation of what would take place uh, perhaps around the time of like 80, 70 in the temple, so forth. Uh, we didn't get into that a great deal, but the same idea holds true. To the extent that God's people are not listening to God's word, they are performing religious rituals without their hearts being in it, then God's disciplinary judgment comes on his people to call them back to proper repentance. Chapter 8 changes and shifts the focus to a much more positive and... Um, encouraging a glimpse of the future and uh, a reminder of what genuine fasting looked like in contrast to the the false and selfish fasting that was taking place before. Um, so there's a uh, there's a description of what's going to take place and then there is a um, reminder of, or an anticipation description of what is actually going to take place. Um, this is a declaration from, the, from God. We see in chapter 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord came. Uh, chapter 7, verse 8, the word of the Lord came. And then chapter 8, verse 1, the word of the Lord of hosts came. Uh, and also we see this phrase, Lord of hosts, throughout these two chapters. Uh, verse 2 might at first give us pause where it says, uh, the Lord of hosts, chapter 8, verse 2, uh, says, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. So, uh, how do we tend to think of jealousy as a positive or a negative thing? Okay. Okay, could be both. Why would you say that, Tina? I'm not saying you're wrong. Why would you say that? Why, why is jealousy, could it be a good thing? I don't know about a good thing. Uh, well, no. No? Okay. Well, if God, is, uh, if God is saying that he's jealous for people, then we'd have to say it's a good thing, right, if God is doing it. So I think you're on the right track there. So um, what, when is jealousy bad? Think about self? Okay, what are we going to say to you? Okay, yeah. So if I'm jealous of your, you guys remember those little uh, little toy cars with the yellow roof and the red body that you push around with your feet? You know what I'm talking about? Tootsie toys. Whatever it was called, yeah. When I was a little kid, that was really cool. So if the neighbor had one of those and I was jealous of the neighbor, so I went and took his, it led me to sin, then yeah, that would be a, um, an example of an evil kind of jealousy. Um, when could jealousy be acceptable or even, uh, right, yeah? When you have a desire for what God desires. So, okay. you can be jealous for his name. His okay. Name, and be, have the right motivation to, uh, 
Okay, what kind? What does that kind of jealousy look like, practically in an everyday situation? Xander. Okay, uh, agreed. Uh, really specifically, uh, uh, what would it look like for me to be jealous for God in a... Sp- yeah, John. God work in situations that I'm in, sometimes somebody will curse, and I'll say, God is listening. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So to be concerned about God's name. Um, what else? What are some other examples of what jealousy would look like that would be proper? Yeah. Sure. Give me a specific example. Like, I agree with what you're saying, but like... So, uh, the perversion of Christmas with Santa Claus and materialism and taking a stand and saying, this is wrong, and, you know, most people don't care what we think, but we can make changes in our own lives as a protest to... Okay. So I had an interesting conversation with a lady at a retirement home one time because she was very upset that they were putting uh, like a Santa Claus Village decoration in the dining hall instead of a nativity scene. And the conversation I had with her was, we are not commanded to celebrate Christmas in the Bible, so if the place that's not a Christian organization does something that's not a Christian thing, I don't know that we need to be super angry at them about it. But the theme of materialism absolutely is something that, yeah. Sure, I guess here's what I'm trying to say. Like in the in the context of the moment at which we're at this time of year every year, I feel like sometimes we put a lot of energy into trying to reclaim Christmas as opposed to mm, I guess um I guess I would maybe and maybe this isn't a valid parallel. I would guess I would maybe put a parallel with the subject of marriage. Uh, and here's, this might seem like a strange parallel, but um, to the extent that, and maybe this is what you're getting at, to the extent that we're modeling what a godly marriage looks like, that is a testimony of what's right and proper to God, as opposed to um, um, feeling like the forms of all right, let me back up for a second. So when I was a kid, here were the elements of what a wedding looked like. It was at a church. There was a reception afterward. They had nuts and mints and cake. And you threw bird seed or rice. I forget which. I think rice. Now we have scenarios where weddings are not at churches, where sometimes the people who are getting married are not people who should be married for a variety of reasons, where 
there might be something completely different than the nuts and mints and cake and where it's no longer considered proper to throw rice because I guess squirrels eat it and their bellies explode or something. I forget the reason. Maybe birds. It's the birds, I think. The birds. Okay. So here's my point. If we're nostalgic for what weddings were when I was a kid, or you know, rewind it to when you were a kid, maybe it's something completely different than what I described, and we're like, we're going to fight for the heart and soul of a wedding service the way that it always ought to be, I think that's sometimes how we approach the subject of Christmas. Hang on one second. So what I, wanna, what I want us to think about is if we are zealous for God's name, we need to make sure that we're zealous for God's name and not zealous for a form that is nostalgic or comfortable. Go ahead. So just give two examples. So if we went to a church and they were putting on a, a cantata, yeah. and they had a mixture of Santa Claus and a Tiffany scene, yeah. we, we should speak out against mixing those two. Conversely, I think if we went to uh, a retail organization or even to a friend's house and they were mixing the two, we... I think would be right to say those two should not be mixed. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, though, too, is do people... Um, people that do it, it do it ignorantly, I would agree. Sure, and, and, and then my follow-up question would be, if we can do it in such a way that we're pointing that person to the truth of the gospel instead of to a, again, going back to the nostalgia or the... Um, let me throw out another parallel. We have this idea America has always been a Christian nation and then the liberals took it over and now it's a mess. And the reality is the heritage of the United States was mixed from the beginning. It was predominantly Judeo-Christian, but there were a fair number of people. I mean, Jefferson went and chopped up the Bible for his own ends. Benjamin Franklin was probably a deist, it's hard to say, or um, you know, at least uh, more Quaker ideas, divine spark of goodness in every being, something along those lines. And so, even from the very founding of our country, it was a mixed heritage of a variety of different things. Now, again, a lot of them, like probably like, let's say 50-50, was secular people versus people worshiping God after some fashion. And now maybe it's like 80-20 secular people versus people worshiping God after some fashion. But again, um, my point is to say, zeal for God's name often, if we're, and, and, uh, if we're not careful, turns into zeal for things that we like or things that are comfortable for us or, or those sorts of things. So we're having a discussion about saying Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays, right? And um, Braden was saying, so what's the matter with saying Happy Holidays? And so we talked about that because... Uh, it's sort of uh, it's seen as kind of like an inclusive phrase, like Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas if you're in England and France and whatever. Um, and then maybe there's a couple of other holidays thrown in. And so the idea is we need to push back against that by saying Merry Christmas. I would agree to a certain extent that's true. But again, if somebody says to you Happy Holidays and you aggressively say Merry Christmas, and then and then. To the extent that it's someone going to say over and over again, maybe we need to have a little bit more of a strategic view of it of like, you know, um, how do I point this person to the gospel through repeated conversation as opposed to um, using words to try to constrain them in a way that's not really going to get through to them and potentially just make them be like, 
this person's just being grouchy. I don't want to be around them. You know what I'm saying? So, all that to say, what is jealousy for God's name? Why can God be jealous for his people? What's true about God and his people? He's adopted them as a special people. Right. So they belong to him, so he's jealous for them. So I think um, a, uh, maybe a really clear example of jealousy would be um, if your child... Um, wanders into the neighbor's yard and the neighbor's like, oh, the child is in my yard, now I'm going to take this child, this child is now mine. You wouldn't be like, oh, I guess they're not my kid anymore. No, they belong to you, right? You're zealous for them. Um, if your child's about to wander into the road or some other kind of danger, you're not like, well, you know, these things just happen. No, you're, you're, you're zealous about it, you're jealous for their safety. And in this context, God is jealous for his people that they would not be uh, devoted to empty forms or pursuing idolatry again, but that they would belong to him and know that they belong to him and be devoted to him because they are his people. So, um, uh, it's interesting, uh, there's a few other instances where it talks about the, the spirit, um, I think it's in James, right? We usually think of the word lust in a negative sense. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Maybe it's not in James. Is it in Corinthians? Regardless of where the passage is, depending on the translation, there's a strong desire of the spirit. And the, the word jealousy is used in kind of a parallel sense. Most of the time it has a bad connotation, but here it's an intense zeal of God for the hearts of his people. Um... As we keep going here, um, we have uh, another question as we go through here. Well, let's, let's read a few verses here. Um, let's read chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Someone read that for us? Chapter 8, verses 1. Robert, thank you. All right, so God's jealous for his people. He has great zeal on their behalf. What does verse 3 point out is going to take place? Okay, which looks like? Okay, so the people are going to be in Jerusalem. And we might say, will that happen in 1947? People went back to Jerusalem who were Jewish descent. Except what's lacking according to verse 3? God's not there. Is Jerusalem called the city of truth? No. Is the mountain of the Lord of the hosts called the holy mountain? I mean, we could argue that point, but not in the sense I think that verse 3 is talking about. Um, and 
to be very clear, what I am not saying is um, the political nation of Israel has spies, so Jerusalem is not the city of truth. That's not the point that I'm talking about. There's people that are trying to spin it that way because of all the conflicts and wars that are going on and have been for the last several months. Uh, what I'm trying to say is the dwelling of God with his, the visible dwelling of God with his people and, and the nation of Israel being recognized as a light for the nations is something that did not appear to have taken place after the exile and nor in the however many centuries since then, right? Um, what else is going on when we look at verse 4? What do we see in verse 4? Peaceful. Peaceful. We see that going on in, in the present day moment in Jerusalem. Yeah. No, no. No, no, no. no, not right now. Yeah, yeah. But we will see what's described here, right? Um, and again, verse 5, the streets of the city filled with boys and girls playing in the street. So long life, children playing safely, all those sorts of things. Um, it's interesting that God addresses the uh, attitudes of the people in that they feel like it's too hard for God to accomplish this, right? Verse 6, will it be too hard in those days? Will it be too difficult in God's sight? So there's this disconnect between God's sight of what is um, re uh, required is not the right word. Uh, possible, what's going to take place. So it's easy for us as God's people to look at a situation that seems impossible. So if you looked at Jerusalem right now and you compare it to these words, what's your likely conclusion going to be? Never going to happen. It hasn't happened. It's never going to happen, right? It would be easy to think that, right? Because how long have these conflicts been going on in that area, in that region? Yeah, maybe even before, so thousands of years, right? So, but God says, I'm going to save my people, I'm going to bring them back, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. The vision of God has always been His people would dwell in um, peace and safety, He would be the, the ruler in their midst, that God would dwell with His people. We have a brief glimpse of it in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. We have a brief glimpse of it at the beginning of the kingdom in which David walks with God for a brief period of time. There's a few more glimpses along the way when righteous kings for a few years devote themselves to God. But by and large, we just get these brief glimpses uh, I mean, even when they're wandering in the wilderness, God's with his people, people with God, but there's a lot of complaining and unbelief and all those other sorts of things. There's a, an anticipation of it, um, I think, in the picture of the early church. And then we see that that also quickly went astray in various directions, right? Um, it became an institutionalized thing where city and state merged and you end up with things like the Catholic Church and a lot of the denominational things that have taken place since then. We see a brief glimmer of maybe it's going to happen again in the Reformation. Um, 
we see what is described in 1 Peter. Again, a reminder of the, of the vision of what's supposed to take place. But I think that we do not see Zechariah's words fulfilled until near the end of the book of Revelation. And so, I think it's easy for us to say that there are large segments of history of the world and of God's people, of the church, and so forth, that this vision seems very far off, which again goes to Second Peter, where he says, there are scoffers that will say, where is the promise of his coming? Everything continues the way it's always been. There's conflict in the Middle East. There's people going their own way. God has made this world, if there is a God, and abandoned it. Like, those are the sorts of attitudes that people have. And God says against that attitude, the exiles are, are the temple's not yet built, but it will be. But the exiles are still largely in disarray at this point when Zechariah is writing these things. To the extent that that's their situation, it's going to be very easy for them to doubt God's words. So, God uh, encourages them. So, look at um, 9 through 13. Who wants to read those? 9 through 13? Oh, Braden, go ahead. Thank you. All right, so what do we... Are there any... Yes? Is which? I'm sorry. Okay. Are there parallels between God's people Israel this moment and us today? Yeah. Yep. Um... I think the thing that we're looking forward to and the thing that they're looking forward to are perhaps uh, like we have obviously I think a little bit different perspective on it, but at the same time the attitude should definitely be the same. Yeah. What does he encourage them with? Does it uh, when he says, "Let your hearts be let uh, let's see, let your hands be strong," and then closes in verse thirteen, "Let your hands be strong." Uh, does that remind you of any other passages in the Old Testament, particularly? Sounds like uh, when they entered the Promised Land, and, and Joshua and God and was related to the people. And yeah, I think it's meant to sound like that because I think there's supposed to be this parallel of, um, "I'm your God, I'm with you." I mean, just as they had to have God with them when they entered the land the first time, they need God with them as they're redoing things. There's sort of a renewal, a restoration, a redoing of all the work in the land that they did a long time ago, and now they've been gone, and now it's 
it's being restored. Um, so he's saying, listen to the words of the prophets. Don't give up on the work that God is doing. I'm not going to treat the remnant as in the former days. There will be peace. And just as you were a curse, you will be a blessing. I'm going to argue that I think there's an element to which these things are conditional and to the extent that people did or didn't actually do them, that the fulfillment of God's promise was delayed. Not that he was surprised by it, but from a human perspective, it was delayed. Let's, let's see why. Uh, verses 14 through 17. Someone want to read those for us? Grace, thank you. Okay. So God says in verse 14, I purpose to do harm to you. I have not relented. I have again purposed to do good to Jerusalem, the house of Judah. So, is there a contradiction between verses 14 and 15? Okay, we would tend to say, what's that? It seems like at first glance. Right. Right. Okay, and that's one potential explanation. Let me lay out a couple of things here that I think are helpful from the, the notes here that um, I got from uh, Dr. Dunham. So he says God is unchangeable in his person and perfections. So God in who he is does not change. Uh, Malachi 3.6 makes that clear. Uh, Hebrews 1 says you're the same, your years will have no end. Secondly, God is unchangeable in his decreed purposes and plans. Uh, Ezekiel, I'm the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass, I will do it. And then Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. Thirdly, God is unchangeable in his revealed truths and promises. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. And then 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then the things that he affirms and declares, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46. And then there are occasional places in the Bible where it seems like God changes his mind. So Genesis 6, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. 1 Samuel 15, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, the Lord relented from the calamity and held back the angel who was working destruction among the people. And Jonah 3, God relented of the calamity he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Yes? Just curious. I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Yeah. But, so just like with jealousy. Yes. Right? We look at jealousy and we say, oh, that's bad. Right. God in English 
maybe as opposed to Hebrew. So uh, in that kind of twist, how we view that, because humanly speaking, we look at both of those words, in other words, and say something's wrong here. God sure. Is not perfect. Okay. I, mean, just thinking. I think when we hear the word regret, we tend to put the baby up in the bathwater. He said he regretted putting Saul as king of as king, yes. But does that mean he regrets having a king? Okay. That's a fair point. Yeah. Let me let me add this too. Um if we take it as this, uh, what are the ways that people have understood this idea of regret or relent? One is to frame it in exclusively human terms and saying God's experience of the thing that's described in these verses is exactly the same as ours. So, this is where um, the open theists and the process theologians come in. Open theists would say, God didn't know, so bad things happen. Uh, Zechariah 8, 14 and 15. God didn't know, so that's why he had to change his mind because he received new information and on the basis of the new information he did something different. Right? That is what an open theist would say and their perspective is essentially God is limited in his knowledge. That's not true according to the Bible. Right? Because if Jesus can say, hey, Nathaniel, when you were standing under that tree a mile away, I saw you that you were an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel takes that as a recognition of Jesus as God. That's one glimpse of the fact that God's knowledge is not limited in the way that ours is. Um, another way of taking it is to attack not God's knowledge, but God's power. So, there's a school of thought called process theology that basically says God is not above the universe, but God is a part of the universe and therefore constrained by certain boundaries of the universe. Either because he created a set of rules and bound himself by them, sort of like pagan deity kind of ideas, or because he's just a part of the creation so he can't fully control everything that happens in it. What you thinking? I'm not saying that idea is true. I'm saying that's what an idea people have. God, or is he a lesser being that just happened to exist here? Yeah, and that's really the question, right? So, you cannot have the God of the Bible and argue for limited knowledge, limited power. So, yes. Okay. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. So, if it's not a limitation of his knowledge or power, those are the reasons that we change our minds, right? Uh, case in point, there was a Wednesday night where I said to Braden, um, mow the yard and practice violin and get your whatever things done. And it didn't work out because there wasn't enough time. Now, did I know there wasn't enough time? No, because I thought it was doable. And it wasn't doable. And so well, then we had to change the plan. But the reason the plan had to get changed was not, um, it was a problem with me, right? So, um, the way that um, the way that the, the guy who wrote these notes would say it is an unchanging God 
must, in quotes, change in his dealings with changeable man in order to remain changeless in his being and character. So here's what he would say by that. He announced and did not relent of the disaster or judgment he purposed to bring against his people and sending them to captivity. Later, he purposed to do good to them to form the consistency of his promises. In reality, this simply means in both cases he was consistent with his declaration in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear no means clear the guilty. Now I think the one about the exile is a little bit easier than the one with something like Jonah, right? Because it's not the same generation that God is saying, I will punish, I will restore, right? For the most part. And even if it was, what is different in them? Now, here's the question. What has changed? We see some word like regret or relent, and we think something has to have changed with God. And I would argue the thing that has had to have changed is what happened with the people, right? And so, it's not exclusively this, but a big part of it would be when God says, I will do blank, bring judgment, bring disaster, bring discipline, whatever, upon a group of people or an individual. There is an implied, unless you repent. What happens with the people of Nineveh? The people of Nineveh repent. God does not destroy them. Because that's consistent with promises God has made along the way. And so, instead of seeing in God's statements a, a fickleness or an unpredictability, we should see in God's declarations that he uses them as a means to provoke a response from people, not that he's changing, but that they're changing, and then based on promises that he's made and statements that we know about who he is, then the action that results is different. Now, what we want to do is we want to understand, like sort of start at the end and work backwards to a conclusion. And the problem with that is because we don't fully grasp what it, and never will, what it's like for God to be God, it's very easy for us to frame it in our own ways of understanding things. So, again, if I say to my kids, hey, we are going to not whatever, we're not going to go on a walk because you didn't clean your rooms. Then they run and they go clean their rooms, and I say, all right, now we're going to go on the walk. I didn't know if they were going to do it or not going to do it, right? God does. The condition was, did this thing take place? And, you know, to the extent that God knows, and this is where I think it's easy for us to think of God perhaps in a little bit as being manipulative, even though he's not, in that if God knows if I do this, this will be the result, God knew that sending the people into exile would provoke repentance among a significant number of them. And so God says, I'm not going to turn from my disaster when he's speaking through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then he brings them here, and then in the minor prophets he says, I'm going to restore you back to the land. 
The reason that's possible is because of the warning that he gave here. He was faithful to his promise. He carried out the consequence. That then leads to the reality of we have... Um, it's okay. She's not as disruptive as some other people that have been in here. Uh, the reality is that God used the circumstance of the exile to provoke repentance in his people and then the aspect of his promises, which is, if you are faithful to me, I will bless you, kicks in, right? So instead of God being unpredictable and fickle, God is being faithful and consistent with promises that he's made. And so uh, when it comes down to it, there is an appearance of change, but the change is only a real thing from the perspective of people who didn't know what was going to happen in the first place. Does that make sense, James? What are you saying? If I was to say, if I was to say anything, there would be no change from God. He told you what he was going to do from the beginning. Right. Whether you did it or not, there was going to be either a consequence or, or reward. Right. So, I don't understand. Yeah, so God hasn't changed. So, if he didn't, and even in the cases where he doesn't spell out, and if you do good, this will not happen, there's still an implication of that based on all the other things he's already said. Yes, Tina? But when God, God says something, it's true and it's, it's honest and it's unchangeable. Right. So why is he putting people in or is this just to throw us off that he relented? Relented? Yeah. About putting these people in. I mean, he knows the beginning to the end. Are there limitations of language that God is accommodating to people who can't understand it in any other way? That's not exactly how you said it, but that kind of idea, I think. And my answer would be yes. And it's not a limitation of Hebrew versus English, because I don't think that Hebrew is always better at communicating things than English. I mean, God did put it in that language, but I don't know it's because it's the most... I don't know that I would say God put the Bible in Hebrew and Greek because they're the most nuanced languages in the existence of the world. I think it's because of the time in which the Bible was given, the people to whom he was giving it. But um, there are occasionally words where there might be five words for something in Greek and one in English or vice versa, but I don't think that's the main point. I think it's more the simple fact of um, if you and I are talking to a child and we say, we say something like sunrise. I mean, even as adults we do this, right? When we say sunrise, we know if we've ever studied science that the sun doesn't actually rise. It doesn't go to bed and get up in the morning, right? But we still talk about it that way, right? So I think there's a degree to which God is accommodating us as children, as finite beings, as very limited in our knowledge. When he says, I relented or I regretted, he's framing in our terms, the thing that took place, whereas when you come over here and look at it from his perspective, he knew exactly what was going to happen and he didn't change at all, right? And so it's not dishonest for God to say, the sun rises. It's not dishonest for God to say, as far as the east is from the west, I will, you know, take my sense. That's not has no comment about whether the earth is flat or round or anything like that. There are conventions of saying things, and God is relating somewhat incomprehensible truth to people with limited knowledge and ability. 
So a lot more things we could say about this, but just because uh, I want to get to the next point here, which is, what does God say to them to do? God says, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace. Don't devise evil in your heart. Don't love perjury or lying. Um, it might potentially be, I'd have to look up the exact word, this might be parallel to the not bearing false witness against your neighbor because that was typically the form of lying that God condemned them for. All these are things that I hate. So, I have purpose to do good. So, what should a response be? It should be to honor me and to do good. Here's the specific ways I want you to do good. And here's my question for you. Did the people in the 400 and some years between the return from exile and the coming of Jesus listen to Zechariah's words? For the most part. Did they judge with truth and judgment, speak the truth, not devise evil, not love false witness? No, because these are all the same things Jesus condemns them for in the Gospels, particularly the religious leaders. So I think that's why I would argue, if the people of Israel had fulfilled God's word in verses 16 and 17, this fulfillment of the rest of chapter 8 would have taken place sooner. In the same way, if the people had received Jesus as the Messiah, I think that the time period between Jesus coming as the suffering servant and the reigning king would have been much shorter. That's a whole other topic. But, what is the future vision he holds out? Let me just go over it really quickly as we wrap up here. We can get into it a little bit more next week. The fast of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah, so love, truth, and peace. The fasting will be turned to feasting, is the first thing he says. Then in verse 20, it will be the people will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. They will go to one another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says, In that day ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So there's this future vision in which God is going to restore the fortunes of his people, is going to turn their fasting into feasting, is going to um, put them in this place where people see that they're the one among whom God is in their midst. I would argue this is fulfilled when Jesus reigns during the millennium. We can talk more about that uh, in future weeks. Um, I would also just say a really brief thing, and again we'll get more into this later, the church has not usurped or taken over these promises to the people of Israel. And that's a really important point because there's a ton of Christian books that will say the church has taken the place of Israel. So yeah, God said this was going to happen to Israel, but now it's fulfilled in the church. People are going to say, instead of we're coming to a Jewish person and saying, God is with you, they're going to come to someone in the church and be like, hey, we want to spend time with you because God is with you. Now, do we get echoes of that? Yes, but not because God has replaced Israel, because God is doing a thing in the church that parallels what was supposed to have happened in Israel, as Paul says in Romans, to provoke Israel to jealousy so that these promises would yet be fulfilled someday. Talk more about that next week. We'll wrap up there for today. Father, we thank you for this day and for these truths. 
uh, as we think about the fact that you are a God who sees the future and who knows all things and who controls the course of history, may that give us confidence. And uh, rather than seeing a loophole that you can't see around the corner or you can't reach down and, and affect something so we can do whatever we feel like or we can somehow hide from you, the fact that you see all and that you rule over all means that your promises will be fulfilled and so that should be a sober warning that we ought to follow your word, not out of slavish fear, but just out of confidence that you're a God who keeps his promises, both because of perfect knowledge and perfect power. And so help us, Lord, to follow after you. Help us not to, as the people of Israel did, see these promises and admonitions and reminders held out and refuse once again to listen to them, but help us to heed them and to follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.